Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. I'm Bruce Daisley. I'm back with a work chat. I'm joined by Ellen Scott. Hi. Hello, Ellen. And Matt, Matthew Cook. To Hello, Matthew. Hi. Great to be back. Uh, to try and make sense of the world of work and what's happening out there. And, and on since the start of 2024, there's been no shortage of news and discussion and debate about work and how work's changing. It's an interesting theme. I, I often find... Are we going to feel done with this stuff? Are we going to feel like oh, all of this has been exhausted? But the same stories sort of seem to keep coming back in different forms and different incarnations. So I think we've got plenty to talk about today. Um, okay, I wonder if we could kick off, actually. Matt, you saw something fascinating, which I think has direct consequence for pretty much every discussion about work and making work better. Do you want to jump in with that? I know, it's fascinating, slightly worrying interesting, I don't know, all of the adjectives seem to spring to mind. It was research from the University of Oxford, which was looking at the effectiveness, or perhaps I should say ineffectiveness, of workplace well-being interventions kind of aimed at an individual level. So essentially, a lot of the well-being initiatives designed around things like managing your resilience, uh, meditation classes, yoga, things that they call kind of that individual level. So they're designed to target the individual employee. And yeah, some quite shocking conclusions or perhaps not that surprising, but maybe quite nice to see verified in the data. Essentially found that most of those individual level well-being interventions that were designed to produce changes in individuals, kind of employees' mindsets, behaviors, didn't really do the job as intended. So things like resilience, stress management, relaxation classes, they produced, and this is a quote, no reliable difference in mental well-being. So they're not doing what we'd hoped. They're not helping people deal with work demands better. And interestingly, one of the only ones that seemed to have kind of some small benefit was volunteering, suggesting that it was more related to the social aspect of volunteering rather than the well-being interventions that were aimed at kind of the mental ability to respond to stress. And I guess the reason I found it quite alarming is just having worked in many different companies and cultures, just how many well-meaning initiatives there are that 
clearly aren't unfortunately doing what we'd hoped. It was kind of this realization or at least evidence around the need to be working at the system level rather than shifting that responsibility to the employee level. And yeah, I found it absolutely fascinating. And the fact that some of them even backfired. So things around stress and time management sometimes had a negative effect in that it made people more aware of unrealistic time pressures without actually being given the psychological uh, tools to cope with them. What what were these wellness programs? What what sort of thing did they look like? Did they articulate what that was? Yeah, so it looked at, so it's quite a big study. It looked at 46,000 workers across 230 different organizations over a number of years. And it looked at, like I mentioned, kind of this individual level thing. So relaxation classes, mindfulness, resilient stress management, well-being apps, things that were designed to equip people with the psychological tools to do their job better. So that's kind of the the aim of those. Typically, it's how do we help people manage the work demands better? And seemingly, those things aren't very good at doing it, that actually they don't produce a reliable benefit in helping people manage work demands better. Sometimes they have a negative impact. And actually, we need to be looking more at that system-wide level. How do we reduce the work demands on people so they don't have to psychologically cope with them better. Do you think that's why they didn't work? Because the systems in place are still not working. So like if you are being equipped to deal with stress better, that doesn't actually deal with the stress of your job. Is that why they didn't work? Yes. Great question as to why they didn't work. And there was a variety of reasons it didn't work. But that was the thing that kind of stuck out to me was this idea of you know, the organization has produced a level of stress of work demands and then are kind of offering a band-aid to the symptom rather than working. Well, how do we stop these symptoms presenting? How do we reduce the work demands? And kind of the conclusion or one of the many conclusions of this particular researcher was essentially that, you know, I concur with the reviewers of the field of organizational interventions, such as changes to scheduling, management practices, staff resources. They may appear to be more more beneficial, sorry, in improving well-being. Yeah, I I, I, th- I think I saw a few of the comments online of this, and and people were saying, you know, if I, f- I feel already overloaded, then someone telling me I need to go to a wellness webinar at 4.30 on a Thursday, but also still do all my emails and my meetings. You could see why, if that was the intervention that the firm had created, that that could contribute to people's stress levels going up. That was quite relatable, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's quite a sad realisation, in part because there are many well-meaning initiatives and there are whole well-being departments in some organisations dedicated to improving the well-being of individuals. But often those departments don't have the ability to actually impact the organizational level. So there are departments that are responsible for it without the actual ability to create the right type of change to see those metrics. So it's a bit of a a vicious cycle we've kind of got ourselves uh, locked in. Yeah, I guess what it felt like to me was that if you put up a sign on the wall saying, 
this is a, a lovely place to work. It doesn't necessarily make it into a lovely place to work. It was very similar, actually. I, I think I've spoken about it once before on the podcast. I, I chatted to someone who works in an organization that was famed for if you chatted to anyone there for having this overwhelming burden of emails and, and Slack messages and, and meetings, but they started every meeting with a, a mindful moment. And so they would all sit there in silence for 30 seconds or a minute before the meeting. And in itself, it was an attempt to pretend that this was a, a place with serenity and calm running through it. It was meant to sort of feel like it was just the the citadel of wellness and in fact you know for everyone there it just felt like that was a minute that you probably glanced at your phone for a minute or you or you just thought about how stressed you were about the meeting that you're about to start and it just seemed like a an attempt to pretend that it was a good place and what I saw about the comments of this whole coverage I saw a, a lot of TikToks about it as well people said it's an illustration that you can't gaslight people into thinking that you've got a good culture because you've got a wellness program. You need to think about how you reduce stress levels, how you reduce the demands that your organization's creating, and you kind of can't kid people that it's something different. I don't know if that was your take on it. Yes, yeah, certainly around <laughs> interesting term of gaslighting people into thinking you've got a good culture. Uh, my takeout was the difficulty in balancing um, supporting individuals and making genuine organizational change. I see this tension a lot with things even like learning and development, where a lot of the uh, responsibility is shifted onto individuals rather than kind of the organization. And in part because it's easier to do, it's a lot more difficult to look across a company and connect siloed departments and create organizational change versus saying, well, we'll just give each person a well-being app. Now, that's not to say that a lot of the interventions that have been designed are easy. It's just easier to do that than to shift things organizationally. But it's I think, a real tension there because the reality, of, I think a hard truth of this is it does start with the individual to a certain extent. You know, although you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, there is going to be a psychological component. But obviously, your own ability in coping or developing the tools is massively and more so influenced by the context and culture you're in. And it really has to start there. Yeah, it sort of brings us on to, um, I want, you, you brought along something, Ellen, and I was, I was really intrigued to hear about this in the, in the sense that it felt incredibly timely, which was this idea of chrono working. And so I wonder if you could, you could give us perspective on that. We've put that link in the show notes. So chrono working is a term that I came up with because I wanted a catchy term for something. Um, but it's basically what I hope will become more of a conversation this year. I'm hoping that it will be the next kind of frontier in flexible working. Um, and what it is, is chrono as in chronotypes um, to do with sleep and energy levels and the idea that we might align our work schedules more closely with how we work best according to time. So if you're a morning person, you might be able to pick up work earlier in the morning. If you, like me, have a massive energy slump kind of mid-afternoon, you might be able to have a longer lunch break and make up the hours later on. But it's just being more flexible in terms of, are we actually using our time in the best most optimized way or could we be just slightly tweaking the traditional nine to five to make it better fit with our genuine reality of our energy levels i love this idea 
And I love the name as well, chronoworking. <laughs> yeah, a brilliant term. It certainly resonated with me. My standard day is basically work from when I wake up, it's kind of 7.38, stop at 11, I then have three hours off, kind of exercise, go sh- shopping, get some food in, have lunch, and then start again from two. So it's basically three on, three off, three on. And I still have intense guilt about counting the hours, even if I've done all of my to-do. So even I have to kind of still shift my mindset around it. But certainly just the idea of kind of working and figuring out what my schedule is and my energy has been a bit of a game changer and appreciate the ability to be able to do it. The guilt is such a thing though, because we really have a lot of like kind of shame around certain chronotypes if you're not a morning person you must be lazy or a failure like the most successful people are the ones that wake up at 5am and are immediately productive and super successful at that time um and if you are not you know at your peak for a traditional nine to five again you're failing so I completely get the guilt and kind of shame around that do you see it as um as a way for people to get them the best out of themselves, Ellen? Is it a productivity thing, or is it a way f- for you to articulate to others how best to work with you? Is it like a user's guide for others? I would like both. <laughs> I think primarily okay. it would be nice to get all workplaces just be open to the idea. I think we're very in a lot of businesses very stuck to this is the way we've always done things and. In the last few years, we've seen, you know, starting to question the Monday to Friday routine and starting to talk about four day weeks. I'm hoping that this year we're going, okay, we've done that. How about the nine to five? Is that actually working for the majority of us? Like, I'm not sure if it is. I think a lot of us have been kind of forced into that box. Um, Myself, for example, I don't really know if I'm a morning person or an evening person. I have no idea. I just know that because I've worked these times for years, that's just what I'm forced to do. I don't know what I would actually be like if I was left to my own devices. I love that question, Bruce, because you're teasing out a tension that I was feeling, which is at its extreme is everyone working their own hours when they see fit with a very confusing overlap of when we actually get together to collaborate And obviously there's going to be a balance somewhere in the middle. And if we all focused on our own chronotype, then it might've been very difficult for us to even find this time together to record the podcast. And it makes me think of the manager maker schedule, which when I first saw this basically revealed kind of the different way people work. And it's very difficult to find the time for some people to do the work who are maybe more deep work coders, designers, and then other people that are maybe more project managers that need to check in every now and then. And then you add in chronotype as well. And yeah, there's definitely some balance to be struck here. I think in my initial thoughts are that most people are kind of skewing around the same central hours where there will be crossover. But the alternative is just like chaos chrono working where you just go, okay, these are when our meetings are and they'll be at 1pm or whatever. The rest of the time, do whatever you want, whatever works. If you want to work at 2am, work at 2am. But I understand that might not be practical or conceivable for everyone. I don't know how it works in practice. I think I just want to I just want the conversation to open up. And I guess the point of it, because the pushback often on things like this is that it's more wokery and that we're just allowing people not to to do work. But I, 
I, as if I read this with the intentions right, it's it's not suggesting that people should be shirking, but more actually, there's probably times where, like Matt described there, some of us just wake up full of beans. We can get on with stuff. We can we can power through things in a incredibly sort of focused, productive way. And the more we allowed them to work in that way, we're going to get more productivity out of them. We're just going to get more results out of them. So it's more trying to suggest that if work could reflect people's individual strengths, then it might be a more productive place. Is that right? 100%. I think a big part of this idea for me has been watching one of my colleagues who, like the rest of us, will start work at nine, finish at 5.30. And she's fine with that. But when I'm in the office with her, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, when I'm in the office with her, I can see her productivity levels trailing off from 3pm onwards. She doesn't want to be that. She's constant. she's antsy. She wants to be just out and about and doing something else. If she could shift her hours just back by two hours, which she does on a Monday and Friday, she does a seven till seven till three thirty or similar. She gets so much more done. She feels way more focused and she's not distracting other people with her, you know, chaos slightly when her energy is dropping towards the end of the day. It would make her more productive, but it would also help everyone else as well to just go, this is when people are at their best. Let's make them the most of those times. And I think it's interesting, it's, it doesn't just apply to office work. I know kind of Dan Pink's book, When, explored chronotypes and when is the best time to have a surgery, for example, and lots of studies around you absolutely do not want to go to the doctors at midday. Yeah. So there's actually a broader application kind of to every kind of industry to look at the impact of our circadian rhythms. But actually there's such a broad application just to when are we best suited to do certain types of work. Yeah, I think the types of work is such a good point and such a specific thing because it's not necessarily, okay, we'll all start at this time. It might be, okay, meetings are better in this slot of the day, but in the morning, we're just not as ready to bounce ideas around. And like you say, in terms of the surgery, I think you're right. There's something instinctive where you would go, I don't want my surgery at like 2pm because that's where people are tired and like sleepy. But actually using that and getting into the analytics of going, when are we actually at our best for each task? It could be amazing. It could make everything so much more efficient. New business idea for anyone who wants to develop this app. I'm thinking of a calendar app and we just say, I need to meet with Bruce and Ellen today at some point. And I've put in my chronotype, you've put in your chronotype and it goes, it's 1pm. This is your optimal time. This is your optimal time. And then just have a nap afterwards. Yes. Please plan As you've been told by your app. Yeah, yeah, perfect. It sort of links into that. Um, it's adjacent to that big story that was, like, I guess, a trending story for the last couple of weeks, which was the um, the gym class before work. And for anyone who's missed the discourse on this, it was a – I don't know whether it was a real person or an apocryphal person or just – it was some sort of story where – a new starter, I'm presuming a Gen Z starter, had started in a new organization, was told that the hours were nine to six. And then in their first week, uh, they were told that there was a an 8 a.m. meeting. And the Gen Z participant in this story said, oh, 
that's too bad. I've got a gym class at 8 a.m., so I, I shan't I shan't be able to join. And it's produced simultaneously sort of uh, streams of people furious about the the entitlement and arrogance of this Gen Z interloper. And then a lot of people who've said, well, look, if you don't tell me that the the meetings then, and I've just gone and I've paid £22 to book myself into a gym class, then you can't expect me to cancel it at 24 hours notice for not letting me know, which is broadly the side that I fall on, that you know, if, if you don't warn people that you've got something, that you can't drop a, an 8am meeting on them the next day. But I, I guess it goes into these ideas of different hours of the day suited to doing work. Did you see this story, both of you? Yes, and also firmly on Team Gen Z side, as you might expect. But also, I'm not surprised, but still kind of taken aback by the anger that it's actually inspired, even on the original podcast clip, when they're responding. They're angry. They're like, how dare someone have the audacity to do this? It's really fascinating how that has just triggered so many people. They're really, really upset about it. I don't know why that is. Yeah, it wasn't the language used. My my hands are shaking, and it's not from the coffee. <laughs> yeah, hearing it. Yeah, the 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 visceral reaction I found the most interesting, and I, I might be mistaken. I think the example was it was like the next day. So you know, we we're, we're seeing a very small context here. You know, who knows if it was in in a week's time, but yeah, it was really interesting. Kind of this, what felt like a tension or fight over how much discretionary effort isn't actually discretionary and should be factored in as part of your commitment to the job. But certainly the way work's been shifting over the last few years, going a lot more transactional, we're seeing that with Gen Z, we're seeing that just across the board, that discretionary effort is no longer seen as something that I kind of have to put in. But I don't even see it like that. I don't even see it as sort of uh, as transactional. I see it as like just having the loosest possible boundaries in the sense that mm. as as I read it, if that meeting is 8am in three days time, look, okay, I'll, I'll be there, but it's tomorrow. I've just booked a gym class. I can't cancel that gym class. And I'm sorry, but you know, like just give me respect the fact that I can't just be on call for work at 24 hours notice all the time. I didn't necessarily read it as this person wasn't willing to bend the the margins of where work started and ended but show some respect in terms of when you when you that's how I read it I didn't read it that this person wasn't committed and in fact Ellen's written something this week just saying that look you know in her experience Gen Z workers are not uncommitted to work they they want goals they want to understand how they can get on in work but just show me a degree of respect when it comes to dropping a meeting on me tomorrow yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, that that I was my take on it. Mm, I think it's difficult without, because it didn't come from the manager. I only got the reaction to the podcast hosts where yeah. they were furious that that person even had an 8am gym session. Because I think it's it's okay for the manager to ask, but then it's also okay for the employee to say, I can't. And maybe the manager went, okay, you know, it really it's really tricky to know. But certainly just from judging by the reactions of, well, why has that person even got an 8am 
meeting at gym class. So much, though, of the discourse about these things comes down to, well, in my day, dot, dot, dot. And so, you know, what you find there is that people say, well, in my day, you know, first two years, no one spoke to us. First two years, we, we didn't even have a desk. We, had, we used to sit on the toilet seat in one of the cubicles, and we were just lucky if anyone, if anyone let us close the door of it. It's like it's these crazy hazing rituals really like i had to suffer through it so did you Isn't yeah that, that's actually from your newsletter isn't it yes but why <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, this yeah, is what totally. just baffles me it's like i went through this thing it was really shit now you also have to do it why yeah. why isn't the reaction i went through it it was terrible so now i don't want anyone else to go through that totally. bad experience it's really like bizarre yeah. to me i just don't get I, it. I remember being in a first job where we had this ridiculous administrative job that fell to the two new starters and the woman who was working with me just went and asked the the person who had given us this job why do we need to do this no one seems to no like that was generation ago and just asking a question of why we do it in itself isn't so insubordinate that it doesn't have a value to it i think it's it's a perfectly fair question you know why are you telling me that just this horror that you went through is something that i have to endure as well Definitely. And I think that's a big part of the anger. But I think it's also the with the gym class one, it's about the expectation. So it's was this person expected to always have this meeting at 8am? Was it a spur of the moment thing that they have to be expected to just give stuff up? I think the expectations aren't clear. And that's when things get a bit blurry and complicated and then devolve into this whole generational debate when it's actually quite a simple thing to get started with. 100%. And obviously we have such limited context for it. But the, re- the reason it jumped out, at least in part about discretionary effort or a tension between it is, my reading was that the people that believed they should be there were seeing it as a lack of commitment. And the people that were saying, I don't need to be there, were saying it's got nothing to do with commitment. It's to, to do with boundaries, to your point, Bruce. And it feel, felt like they were kind of, completely different arguments that they were having, that one was seeing it as a lack of commitment, the other was saying, I'm totally committed, but th- but within the boundaries. And I guess if you've if you've if you have not had boundaries, if you weren't allowed to have boundaries, it's very difficult to read other people having boundaries as anything other than an assault on yourself. It's so interesting, I think, because so often I think you you hinted it in, in your piece about uh, Gen Z's, Ellen, but so often what we find is that these people are being, uh, these stories are being labeled as a generational trait. Whereas in, in a lot of the instances, they're just something that was always common to 22, 23 year old workers. I read something a couple of weeks ago that someone said at their work, a lot of the younger workers haven't put their work email account on their phone. And so at lunchtime, they're not reading their work emails and they're just going about their, their lives. Well, let me tell you, that detachment from work was very common amongst 23, 24, 25 year olds when I started work. Because why would you? care about things where you've you've not been afforded any insight into the secrets of what's going on you're not given you're just in a support role and why on earth would you go over and above when you're not seemingly getting any of the benefits of that i don't think that's a generational behavior i just think that's new starters in every industry for all time i think because we've seen that a lot of times that extra effort doesn't work out well. Like we've seen that other generations or other 
workers who are more senior to us are checking their email all the time or are attending meetings at 8am, they're still not getting what they necessarily want. They're still looked over for promotions. They're not getting the pay rises. So you see that and you're like, well, what's the point then? Why would I bother doing that? One thing that does strike me as generational, even if the behavior isn't, is the language to articulate it. So certainly we can talk about it now as boundaries and that wasn't the language that has been used in previous generations. And as I was saying, if you haven't grown up using that language, it can feel potentially, oh, what is this new, like, what you're saying, Bruce, like this, what exactly, this new woke thing, where it's like, well, actually the behaviours were still there. We just didn't have the language to articulate it, similarly around mental health. It all leads into an, uh, an, another trend. And I'll, I'll just remind people that all of the links of all of the things we're t- talking about here are in the show notes. But there's, there's another thing that's um, that's happened in, in the last couple of weeks and and that is there was a, a a lovely bit of insight now worth saying that this is us data and I, i've not been able to track down any any uk data uh, saying that effectively more and more of us are just not wanting to go out in the evenings and and that's got a direct implication because a lot of organizations such had to say we've been trying to arrange work social stuff just no one wants to come we had a team night out no one came and actually that trend is broadly reflected in this data, which is um, looking, for example, one, one of the, the charts looks at the amount of 25 to 34-year-olds who socialise at the weekend and the amount of time they socialise at the weekend has halved in the last four years. And it's just a reflection that maybe some of us, and, and this is uh, for the whole year, it's not just the the nocturnal behaviour in 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 January, but a lot of us are just wanting not to go out too much. It's really interesting because if you were looking at it from a work perspective, you might diagnose that people don't care. They don't care anymore. They used to make an effort. Actually, no, it looks like it's something more societal. And uh, I was just, I was really struck with the implications of that for, um, for organizations, really. How do you create a sense of team cohesiveness or create a sense of bond when people may be less willing than ever before in giving up their evenings and, and, and going into their personal time? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's difficult. I don't know the answer because I'm definitely one of the people that does not want any evening plans for anyone, like friends, no, I just don't want to do it. I'm too tired. I think maybe that might end up being the answer is thinking about kind of energy conservation in terms of, okay, if work want us to build more socializing within teams, how can we reserve energy in other ways to make sure that we have the energy for that? So for example, um, no more pointless meetings ever again. <laughs> like that I think is a kind of way of us being socially like air quotes on um that is not enjoyable it exhausts us um it's frustrating and if you've got days of back-to-back meetings the last thing you're going to want to do is have any other socializing on top of that even if that would be kind of truer or more fulfilling socialization so I think perhaps the key might be cutting down on the I'm, I'm reminded of like when we talked to Catherine Price about fake fun versus true fun maybe it's that kind of thing again with socializing of the fake frustrating socializing reducing that so that we can spend more time to being true and genuinely enjoyable socializing 
Yeah, this really struck a chord with me because certainly even before the pandemic, something I've been struggling with almost as an, an existential level is my own social battery and inability to listen to my body when it's saying you really shouldn't go out and socialize. So kind of my own personal journey over the literally last four years has been <laughs> learning to say, I can't come out today because I actually need to rest. And then kind of saw this study and was like, oh no, <laughs> is, is this more of a broader trend and actually I should be going out. Um, and yeah, because in my own research, I've kind of found this thing called the loneliness loop and how the more you're you spend time on your own and you're isolated or perceived social isolation, the more that actually feedbacks and loops. So there's a broader worry I have, which is separate just to my, my own ability to, to say, no, I need to sleep, is as people and myself included start to spend more time alone, there can be a bit of a feedback loop. So your point, Ellen, around how do we conserve energy to then do the type we want, I think is really powerful. And especially given how much time we spend at work, as I start to think about how can work be a mechanism for getting what is lacking. So one of the sides is if you're spending, we're spending too much, but if you're spending like nine to seven at work, it used to be this whole thing of you need to love what you're doing because you have no time to do anything else. But if you're using a lot of your energy at work and you don't have time to do anything else, how can we make sure that energy is used in a healthy way. So maybe, you know, considering how work can be a tool for increased social interaction during daylight hours when people have the most energy, you know, it's a brilliant way to connect to a diverse range of people. You know, you are forced to work with people you might not normally choose to spend time with. So I started to think about how you can use culture to start to design it in a way that kind of has positive social benefits given how much time we do spend together there's something that i've been really taken by and you've seen it in uh all of the series of the traitors okay so bear with me <laughs> and uh what people generally say whether they reach the final dinner at the end or whether they they um they say in the course of the show so, so i'm thinking specific have you both watched the traitors i have yeah. yes obsessed you know, you know the old dear She's probably only 75 or something in the first series. Lovely woman, Margaret or something. But she was, um, and she, she says something where she's, she's been, she couldn't believe that she's made such good friends with people who are so different from her. And it's like this beautiful, I love the casting of that show because it's so ethnically and, and uh, socially diverse. It's a, it's a lovely reflection, I think, of, of Britain in 2024. I love it. But what's charming about it is that, because everyone's been present, mentally present, they feel able very easily to access each other and connect with each other away from some of the things that we might otherwise consider to be limiting. And so it raises this really interesting thing where when we can be present and, and present in a mental sense rather than a physical sense, it seems to be something that connects us and, and energizes us. And so, look, you know, the way that we've fallen foul of this in the past, he said, we all need to be in the office all the time. And if we're going to do something social, it needs to be in the evenings. And I think that that maybe for me is, is a misunderstanding of where connection comes from. Connection seems to come from being mentally present with each other. And, and the more we gift that to each other, the better. So I would say, you know, actually the most critical thing is we might find ourselves at the moment, the Microsoft average says that on average people are spending 20 hours a week on video calls, but we're not present in those calls. You know, we're doing emails, we're thinking about other things, we're, we're trying to look like we're paying attention because no one can spend that amount of time being mentally present. And if we 
replaced one with the other. We said, right, we're going to halve the amount of time we spend in meetings, but we're going to try to have in the either the time we are together or um, we're trying to create these moments of mental presence. I think there's more organizational connection that comes from that. So I think you know that's, that's my lesson from, I always love the, the, the way that people from different backgrounds have become these great friends in this unexpected social experiment that we see in the, the likes of the traitors. But I think there are lessons from that that we can apply elsewhere. And it's just about giving people the headspace to form meaningful connections with each other, probably not in out of hours uh, time, I would say. And that clo- the, the point around friends is so crucial because there's so much data around how uh, close friends and uh, sorry, so much data around how the number of close friends people have has decreased rapidly over the last 20, 30 years. And Gallup did a report around how having a best friend at work is key to employee engagement. I think we might have even talked that talked about that before. So there's this clear decline in friendships that people have and a recognition of how important friends are at work for happiness and engagement. And we just don't have those moments for true connection. As you're saying, Bruce, we don't have those interstitial moments when you were walking back from a client meeting and then you actually got talking about how someone was doing. When you were in the kitchen and you bumped into someone, you maybe have like a few moments at the start when you're waiting for someone to join, how was your weekend? But you rarely actually have time to genuinely connect, especially if you're back-to-back on video calls. And we know some organizations that have introduced for the first 10 minutes, it can only be around you know, social connection. It can't be about work. That might not be the answer, but it's certainly a stepping stone and a recognition that connection and the right type of connection really matters because we need to start forming those bonds, especially if we're spending eight hours a day in the same place. I think that social 10 minutes doesn't work unless you unless you have the amount of time people spend in meetings. Because if you've got 20 hours a week in, in meetings and you start every one of them with a discussion about whether people saw the Grammys or whether people saw... It, it actually feels like an insult. People are like, man, I'm spending all this time in meetings and half of it is listening to what Claudine baked at the weekend. I just, I don't have the time to listen to To be to that. clear, it was so, at a team level, specifically the leadership team weekly. It wasn't, yeah, every single meeting. But I think it, I think you do have to disseminate this down to a team level. Uh, anyway, you know, that's why RTO, RTOs don't work, return to office mandates, because it just doesn't, apply to it can't apply to everyone in the same way whereas if you start thinking at a team level you can really start to kind of make the change i think you can't predict what will bring people together as well because just talking about the traitors how that brought together my colleagues at work we couldn't have planned for it it wasn't a like official measure by the workplace to get us all talking about things and connecting but just every day we'd be like, oh my God, traitors, like, what do you think of this? Oh my God, Ross winked at the camera, <laughs> all that kind of like really in-depth stuff that was making us all bond across departments everywhere. I think fostering environments to allow that to happen. I don't know how you do that, but I think that's such a big part of it. We can't finish today's chat without someone mentioning AI. And thankfully, Ellen has flown to the rescue uh, talking about this this interesting, I guess, growing trend of AI interview tools. Yes. So there are two articles that came out over the weekend. One um, on Metro, where someone was being interviewed and then discovered that they were actually being interviewed by an AI chatbot, which is 
bleak and depressing. How did they yeah. just get what? So, so it was only when they clicked the link. We've invited you to this meeting, and then all of a sudden, you realise that's not a real person that is a computer exactly wow. that because i think you at the moment a lot of times people will enter interviews and they'll just um be presented by a screen that says answer this question record your answer like that i believe that for this specific person it was after the fact that they realized this is an ai thing that's assessing my responses but then there was another article in the guardian um about a but i'll open it so i can look while I'm talking um about these interview tools becoming more uh widely used and this woman has basically done some tests with it where she speaks in a different language or speaks with a different tone of voice and the results are not really changing according to that it will still say like you're 73% right for this job because it's just not fully functioning it doesn't necessarily matter um so say if you were asked a question about managing a team and you just managed to say certain keywords you might still be getting at 100 percent or a tick because you've said those keywords even if they're like garbled nonsense it doesn't matter it's a really strange and also a lot of them this woman was explaining can have their bias baked in because it will say they're looking for you know really specific tone of voice or an accent those kind of murky things that you know humans would pick up on it and that they've designed ai to pick up on but i think it's going to become more common because everyone's so Best for time and yeah. resource. I, I've definitely heard of, of organisations that are big recruiters, you know, like big FMCG, marketing companies and, and, and big organisations. I've definitely heard of organisations that hire 500 people a year. I've heard of them using those tools to filter that. And and as a result of that, it, it makes for quite a, a depersonalised experience, doesn't it? If you just think, I'm just saying something into a computer and, and wondering if any human eye will ever cast eyes on it. It's sort of a disheartening experience, especially if you get rejected. It's like a triage. It's basically how do we triage at scale? And one of the ways we used to do it, which we now know is not a, not a good indicator, was, oh, well, we'll just see if they've got a certain degree. That was how, you know, you sifted 70% of all of them. Right, that one hasn't got the degree. And then lots of research came out saying, it's actually a pretty bad indicator as to whether anyone can do the job or not. And now we're using AI to triage. And one of the problems with it is a lot of AI, especially large language models, you don't actually know what it's triaging or how it's going about it. You just get the outputs. It's even more black box. And I kind of feel like we're going to probably just see a similar thing where it's, well, it's not a great indicator as to whether someone can actually do the job. I mean, we even see that with interviews. Most interviews aren't a good indicator as to whether someone can do the job if they're asking questions about past experience. There's lots of research around those questions don't correlate with if someone can do the job you're asking them to do. You want to instead be asking them more hypotheticals. Ideally, you want them to be actually, you know, the best thing would be someone to work the job. Obviously, you can't do that uh, with everyone. But yeah, there's obviously a lot of ways people are trying to triage. There's a lot of good data around better ways to do it. This doesn't no, feel I agree. like And Bruce, you're so right about it being deeply disheartening because I know a lot of friends who will just do the initial application to certain roles and they'll say 
from the get-go, I'm not going to get through because their AI just always rejects me for some reason. And then that's just based on a CV. But then to imagine if you get to an interview stage and then again, you're greeted not by an actual human, but just algorithm questions. It's so bleak. It's like this person can't even be bothered to give me a chance. It's just a robot deciding if I get the job or not. I mean, it's hard not to sort of conflate it with someone sitting at home swiping through dating apps and then in their daytime effectively being swiped on job apps. It's it's like a, a pretty grim place where I guess there's a lucky few who will find themselves thriving and succeeding in this space. But these, for a lot of people, there's probably a, a vast majority of people who are not going to have good experience in, the, in these these sort of depersonalized systems. And I just, it feels like there's no obvious benefit to it. I mean, the only benefit I can see is for the person in recruitment that doesn't have to do a thousand CVs, they have to do a hundred. But yeah, this certainly isn't thinking about the employee experience. And if if you care about onboarding, you should be really thinking about the steps before that as to how someone is engaging with your company before they start onboarding and the full employee experience. And being rejected by iRobot at the first hurdle isn't a great start. It's also the fact that I think businesses need to be aware that these AI tools aren't as effective as they assume. Like, I think, yeah, it might save you time, but it could um, dismiss a really great candidate. Like, this researcher was saying that this woman weirdly scored very well, kind of surprisingly because she wasn't putting that much effort into her responses but if you had the reverse of someone who's trying really hard but for whatever reason is just being cut out at the first hurdle that's miserable that means you're missing out on really good talent I hope that business owners know that when they're choosing these techniques they might not be getting you know they might save a little bit of time but it might not be to the best best results but it had the word AI, machine learning, and a sexy pitch deck, Ellen. Exactly. And they had a picture of a robot. That's convincing for everyone. Probably a smiling thumbs up person somewhere there. Exactly. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. We've, we've covered a whole load today, and if, if you have been interested in any of the articles, you'll find links to all of them in the show notes, whether it's the AI interviewing or whether wellness programs don't work or Ellen's writing on Gen Z. Feel free to check them all out in the show notes. You'll also find links to Matt, Ellen and myself and how you can get a hold of us. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. See ya. Bye.